From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, man, I don't know about you, but it's, it's getting nice here in New York. Like uh, today is a really, we're talking about the weather. It's a really beautiful <laughs> day. Um, the snow is melting, which I'm excited about. I, I, I can't do snow on the ground for a month straight, which I did this year. I, I realized like, I know that's what the movies always told me happens in the winter, but this is my first time ever experiencing that in New York. And I've lived here huh. for like 15 years um, and there's never been like a month straight of snow on the ground. Um, so I always thought that like my elders were lying when they were like, oh, I walked <laughs> up, you know, uh, but it was a month straight of snow on the ground this year. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm over it, man. I'm over it. So I'm, I'm glad that it looks like it's melting. <laughs> I definitely had that experience my first year in New York. I like the first, my, my first winter there, it started snowing, I was like, you know, in my dorm room, like, oh, that's kind of nice. Like, look, everything looks slightly less disgusting because uh, it's covered in like a clean white blanket. And then, you know, like uh, 12 hours later, all the snow is black and brown. And yeah, it's gross. You know, everyone's just like screaming at you to get out of their way. And, you know, it's New York, which was great. But yeah, the definite, the the lingering of the snow, it was not a thing I loved because also like, I, I don't know if you had this problem when you moved to New York. I definitely had the problem of like, you know, it snowed in Seattle from time to time, but I did not have like actual snow clothing and especially boots. I had like some waterproof boots, which were not at all like lined. So they were not warm. And uh, it really sucked. Cause you know, I also came from a place where when it snowed a foot school was canceled. And like the first time it snowed a foot at NYU, they were like, I was like, Oh, so we're we not gonna have class. And one of my friends who was like, uh, you know, a sophomore was like, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> like, yeah. We're having class. Like, we have class, like, dude. You live, you live, a, you, you're living, you know, a half a mile from your classrooms. Like, yeah, you're going to walk to school. That's okay. Yeah. You'll live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's so funny. Um, what have you been drinking anything good recently? Well, you know, I, I, I gotta say, uh, the, the thing that I, that came to mind that I had recently is uh, I'm going to take a little issue with fine pair content, which like I hate to do, but there was oh, a, a slanderous piece about my beloved Willet bourbon. Actually, I will say my love for Willet is more about the rye, which is why my dog's name is Willet Rye Jabal and not Willet Bourbon Jabal. But, uh, but I, I, I read this piece, uh, very well written, very well sourced about how TikTok, bourbon TikTok hates uh will it bourbon and and i was like okay well i've got a bottle of it right here allow me to uh render my own opinions and, was- and I, I will say this i think the the piece does capture a fundamental truth about the bourbon which is like the best part of the bourbon is the bottle i don't think anyone doubts that and it is not an amazing bourbon in the way that maybe people will be led to believe by the uh, sort of you know very distinctive bottle shape and the fact that Willet as a distillery in general has a very strong reputation. But I think it is also much better than most people give it credit for. And if their expectations are too high, it's unclear to me whose fault that is. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's the part of the phenomenon, right? Is that the, the uh, all the single barrels and things that, you know, are really hard to find, they're very, they're very highly, highly celebrated for. Um, and, you know, th- this too, I think a lot of people uh, in the bourbon world, um, and it's, it's a phenomenon on TikTok, but it's, it's been a phenomenon among like bourbon people forever. Sure. Like I think, uh, as Aaron, who, you know, writes for us a bunch, uh, and is a bourbon expert says like, it's something that it's, it's one of the bottles people like to dunk on. Uh, and I think it's because it feels like a marketing gimmick because of the bottle, right? It's like one of these things where it's like, you know, this bottle feels like it's more about the bottle than the liquid. And look, there's a lot of 
alcohol brands like that, right? Willet is not the only one doing that with this specific product, right? And there's a lot of alcohol brands that make really great liquid that have like one product. It's like, okay, well, why'd you do that? Like, why, why, or what, you know, why am I paying for, I mean, look, there's like, we could dunk on a bunch of people, like, you know, people who put like their bourbon in a Baccarat bottle and you're like, but it's the same bourbon. What are you doing? You know, or, uh, you know, tequilas sometimes that come in these like ridiculously ornate bottles that are, you know, porcelain and whatever. And you're like, okay, I'm paying for the bottle, not the liquid. And I think that's sort of where bur- bourbon purists come after it. Cause it's like, look, you know, my, my pappy is just in a regular bottle, you know, and it's delicious and that's why it's expensive. So that's, I think a lot of reasons why people dunk on it too. But, uh, so, so did you, so then are you, did you read the article and, and, and drink it out of spite? Is that what you're trying to say to me? Like, like I mean, like, I don't know about out of spite. <laughs> I, I drink it fairly regularly, but I think my point is more like I was, I was prompted to sort of go back and be like, well, let me, let me make sure that I, that what I actually, like how I feel about it. Cause it had been a little bit of time since I'd last had, uh, myself, a, a, a glass of, uh, of Willet bourbon. But again, like I said, I think it is, it is a, a, a fine bourbon. I would not call it one of the great bourbons I've had. Uh, that's not the point, uh, or at least that's not, I wouldn't make that point, but, uh, you know, I think it's a little better than, than people think. And again, like I said, part of the issue is just, you're right. There is a, there is a, uh, a disconnect between what you might be led to expect given, you know, without prior experience and, what is actually in the bottle. And as you said, that is not the only uh, bourbon or spirit or thing in the beverage alcohol world where that is true. Yeah. What have you been drinking? So I, what have I been drinking? You know, we, we do this every week. I feel like you could be prepared. No, I, cause you know what? I didn't really drink this week. Um, I took like a, a dry week for a lot of reasons. Gotcha. Um, but so like, I, so I'm trying to, now I'm thinking back to like last week cause we recorded on a Thursday. So I'm like, what did we record? What did I, what did I have Friday night? to drink um oh i i had a a, a really nice i so uh maya Thomas is really nice and sent me their new merlot uh oh, wow. and i had that on friday night and thought that was really delicious um i had that uh when you know we had um like a some some just like tasty treats for dinner um nothing like super fancy i think we did like a kale salad and i made like smoked sausage for myself and like fried eggs for naomi because she's a vegetarian um and it was a, a very tasty like pairing that i enjoyed Cool, but yeah, I mean, no, nothing, nothing crazy, nothing. I'm excited about this weekend um, because I'm gonna go drink outside. Uh, so I'm gonna, I, I made a reservation on Saturday, and I'm gonna go drink at Threes uh, with with a, with a friend or two. So I'm excited about having some like again draft beer, like one of the things that feels to be like this crazy novelty in COVID. Yeah. So I'm very excited about craft about draft beer on Saturday, um, and yeah, and then since that that wine haven't really had a, a lot to drink since so that was like sort of my last bottle but i always find may to be a really solid producer yeah you know obviously i know uh it's very expensive <laughs> so i'm very grateful that their their uh their team likes to send me a bottle or two every once in a while but the the bottle was really delicious so thank you guys um so i think that that brings us to an interesting uh convert like sort of segue to our conversation today which comes out of a uh, a question that was posed to me recently uh, which was we know that behaviors have changed, right? During COVID, uh-huh. we sort of have recognized that more people are drinking at home than they used to. And, uh, you know, they have not traded down in the way that a lot of people thought they might, right? So for a lot of people in COVID, uh, the, the, the world has been fine, right? They were able to bring their jobs uh, remote. 
uh, they were able to continue to maintain those jobs and make those same salaries. And so what that meant is they still had the same disposable income they would normally have uh, when they were dining out. They were just now spending it at home. And so a lot of people use that disposable income to buy wine. Um, I want to, we're going to keep this conversation just about wine, even though the same could be said about spirits and beer. Uh, but so what you saw was this phenomenon where people were going to this, you know, to their local wine shop and sort of buying wines that have now become sort of, you know, weeknight bottles in the twenties and $30 ranges, uh, that they used to maybe discover on the list. So now they started finding like really solid Cabernets and Pinot Noirs and things like that. And so the question that was posed to me was, now that people know that that's what those cost, right? So like, let's say, let's, it's not obviously Mayacamas, Mayacom, like Mayacamas Merlot, I think is a, a $55 retail, but let's say Mayacamas Chardonnay, right? So I think $35 retail. Let's say that's what you started buying. Are you going to be willing to pay its markup for the same bottle now at the restaurant? Or are you going to be looking for something different? So is wine behavior going to change? I think the the core question that was posed was, now that you found the let, like let's say you you return to those comfort foods right as we've called them you return to drinking cabernet and merlot and chardonnay and pinot noir and things like that at home is that going to be the same thing you drink out or are you going to go out and expect something different are you going to go out for discovery mm. and i and it's it was an interesting question and i don't know where i land on it so as always i'd like you to take the first shot at it and then i can disagree <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, I, I kind of want to break this into two two pieces, right? And I think there's the you know the question you posed or the question that was posed to you has kind of two questions uh, nested within it. And one is about whether the kinds of wine that people are going to want when they're out at a restaurant or bar are going to be different than what they've been drinking during quarantine. And I think I want to save that piece of the question for a little bit later on in the conversation. And then the other one is sort of this price sensitivity question. And that I think is also really interesting and something that I'll be honest, I hadn't thought a ton about, um, at least in the, in the, in light of, um, you know, during this specific period, but you're definitely right that whereas in restaurants, like as a buyer, we always were sensitive to wines that had a very widely understood price point in uh, retail settings, especially like grocery stores. And so, you know, there are whatever wines or any number of them that have strong retail presence. Most of them are in the 15 ish dollar range, um, you know, somewhere between say 13 and $20. And they're the kind of wines that, um, you might also consider pouring by the glass in a lot of restaurants. They they come in at a similar wholesale price to allow you to kind of hit your de- desired margins. But there's an awareness that it's hard to charge, you know, thirteen dollars for a glass of Cabernet when someone can get the same a whole bottle at the grocery store for fourteen bucks. Um, and and if it's really widely available, that's going to be something that people are aware of. And uh, but this does raise the question of you know maybe moving out of the glass pour category and into into the bottle list. Are is there going to be a whole uh, sort of set of wines that are now subject to similar uh, wide understanding, or at least enough understanding that that guests would be, you know, sort of turned off by standard restaurant markup? And and I don't know that I have a direct answer to this. I will say that a thing I have thought about is that, like many things in the restaurant industry coming out of COVID, certain things that were just kind of the way things were done need to be reevaluated. And I think beverage alcohol pricing might be part of that. I think, um, you know, for a long time, there was a pretty, a pretty universal format that was only occasionally deviated from in restaurants. You know, you've marked up your glass pours 
you know, four times the cost of the bottle. You So, you know, you were basically paying for the glass or the bottle with the first glass. You marked up your bottles of wine uh, three times the wholesale price. And you kind of, maybe you played around with things at the margins, but that's pretty locked in for most establishments. And maybe if you're a really high-end restaurant with some really, really high-end wine, maybe you don't mark it up quite as much at the really top end because um, you're still making a ton of actual like profit when you sell one of those wines. And I think that that's something that definitely will have to be revisited because as you pointed out, people are just uh, not accustomed to paying 80 or or $100 for a bottle. And when they know that that, they haven't been accustomed to that recently. And when they know that they could get that same bottle at their at their local wine shop for forty bucks, that's a big ask. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's definitely going to shift some consumer behavior in that regard. And look, I, I think there is real data that supports the, why this this question came up. It isn't related to wine; it's more it's related to cognac. But I think obviously the cognac boom was already happening prior to COVID. If you look at any you know significant data, including our Vinepair Insights data, it was already moving on an upward trend, but then people think what caused it to explode was this realization among cognac drinkers uh, that the, the high-end cognacs they were drinking when they were out were so much more affordable when they were at home that they could, uh, you know, they could take that disposable income and put it towards two or three bottles of that cognac. And so, you know, the question is, is that the same for wine, right? Like, you know, if I, if there's a Barolo I like that I had, you know, I would order out maybe once in a while at $150, but now I know I can get it for 50 I could get three. What does that mean? And and I do start to think that, you know, it potentially does mean that there's going to be more of a desire for discovery at the restaurant. Like I think, you know, also, you know, people are and, and I think that's a good thing for small producers. I think that's going to be a very a, a thing that larger producers or regions that are more classic are going to need to understand and accept. Um, I think, and I think that that's going to be across the board. Like I think uh, we're going to, my sort of feeling is we're going to see this sort of move where there may be one or two sort of classics at a lot of restaurants, but that, you know, if you already have discovered the Napa Cabernet producers you like now over the last year, the odds of you going to a, a restaurant and being willing to, dabble in a new Napa producer is probably pretty rare. Like, you know who you like now. Those are your producers. Uh, you're drinking that at home. And maybe you'll continue to play around at home at that price point you're willing to now pay because you've, you've gotten used to that being the price point for Napa Cap. I, look, again, just, an, just a theory. Um, but that maybe out, you're willing to now explore, uh, you know, a region from California that you're not as well aware of, right? That maybe you can't get in your, at your local shop, or there's not as large of a selection of that someone says, Hey, well, they're making really, you know, if you like Napa cabs, they're making really interesting wines in, I don't know, the Sierra foothills or, you know, Paso. And I have, you know, I have some wines from here you should check out. And I wonder if that the same is going to be true for, for other places. The other thing though, that I wonder if, if, if it's going to shift is, you know, the, the competing factor here is going to be that I don't know if a lot of these restaurants will have wine professionals anymore on staff. So, you know, whereas the discovery prior to COVID was very much focused on geeky, sort of very esoteric wines in a lot of places, now the person buying the wine, while they will have a wine background, will also be in charge of probably running the restaurant because a lot of restaurants are going to be looking to make up lost money. I mean, I think that's the other thing to be aware of is that when these places reopen, 
they will not be reopening at break, you know, at, at even already. Like they're going to reopen trying to make up for a lot of lost time for over a year of lost time. And so they're going to try to very quickly make up that revenue, which means not rehiring staff they don't need. Yeah. So what will that look like? Um, and, and again, I'm not totally sure, but I have a feeling that even there, the restaurateur is going to try or the person buying to have stuff that brings people in and away from other restaurants, right? Because I think very quickly when, when things reopen, we will, we will like being out but it won't be we won't be out just to be out. Do you know what I mean? I think there's there'll yeah. be there'll be like I think there'll be six months of people being like, yeah, I just want to eat a burger out, you know, and I, I want a draft beer the way I talk about it, or I just want the, a pizza and like whatever fucking wine. But then I think again, consumers will start to say, no, I want to be out, but I want to be out at the coolest spot. Like I want to be out at like the place that's that's like the craziest, the most interesting, the whatever, because again, the difference in what is happening with COVID is that the people who have disposable income are not hurting. Yeah. So there, it's not like 2008. Like there is this amount of disposable income still in the economy that people of certain means have, and they're going to be the ones that are going to go out and say, okay, like, wow me, I got really into wine over the pandemic and started collecting what, what you got. And I think that's going to make it very different. And I think one of the hard to answer points or questions that this raises is on the service side, as you mentioned, is that is the venue for that a full service sit down restaurant or or are we going to see like a huge uh, demand for wine bars or things like that? Where like maybe the if you're the place that that wants to focus on wine discovery you have to have a concept that really supports that where you can, you know, where your staff is because you're going to need, you know, knowledgeable wine pros, but your, your business model is built around that. I do think you're totally right that we are going to see a lot of restaurants that reopen either with, without, you know, sort of full-time wine professionals or the wine person is also wearing a bunch of other hats or, it's not full service dining, it's counter service. Yeah. And I think that there's, you know, look, I've totally been honest about not being a fan of counter service as someone who's been a service professional for a long time. But I think I have come around to the idea that um, there is something to be said about the way that that maybe frees up uh, concepts that are much more beverage focused. Yeah. Because I mean, in the end, a bar is just a counter service restaurant, right? I mean, that's all it is. Um, that doesn't serve very much food. And I think you could do the same thing with wine. And, and again, it just allows you to, to, to allocate your, your resources in terms of staffing in places that might benefit you business wise. And so I think you're right. People are going to want to discover new things. I think it's going to be, it's going to remain to be seen whether new for, for a lot of consumers is totally off the beaten path of variety, or if it's going to be, just a producer that they're not familiar with that's making right. a wine in a style they already like. That will probably vary from consumer to consumer and market to market to some extent. But I do think that also there's something to be said about, you know, what kind of establishments will exist that can really meet that need. And I'm not sure about that. And I guess the issue there, and I think this is where I think there's going to be two things that support your theory about counter service, um, which I like we said, we've seen we saw some some restaurants already pivot there. And I think this wine bar counter service idea you're talking about 
actually, to me, the more I think about it makes more and more sense is when you can keep costs down, right? So you could be more competitive, but also, you know, I think for the next few years, there's going to continue to be um, like a bunch of these variants of the virus that continue to, we continue to hear about right now. There's, we're hearing there's multiple variants now in New York city. There's this crazy California variant, right? They're, they're going to keep coming and whether like, you know, they, they just make people sick. I think people are scared of COVID enough uh, at this point that, you know, even if it's just a cold and the vaccine only causes you to just have a cold, you're going to take precautions. Because I think you're going to still see a lot of people who are only willing to dine outside, right? Which a counter service restaurant may be easier to deal with. Right, like, uh, okay, you know, come on in and and quickly order, and then head outside, and we'll bring everything to your table outside, and we won't really bother you that much. I think there's going to be a, a lot of that where people want to go to their table, they want to be left alone with their friends, they want to hang out and drink, they don't want to have to deal with the service staff that much, not because they don't want to deal with the service staff, but because they don't want to come into contact with people that they don't feel like they trust, even if everyone's vaccinated. Right, I think that's 100% supportive of of your theory, and then also because my question becomes. You know, when you when you say, are they willing to drink other producers of a style they already like? I think they might be, but only if that style is within the price they're already used to paying. Yeah, that's and it. so uh, that that's where I think that the only way you can do that is if you're able to be price competitive with these with these wine shops, right? Yeah. So, are you able to offer like a buy the glass that seems in line with? Oh, yeah, okay, I could see that a you know a ten dollar glass of this Cabernet from Napa is in line because I'm paying like, I don't know, like I'm paying out 30 bucks. So like it's not a crazy markup. Right. But if all of a sudden I start seeing like $20 glasses of Napa Cabernet on the wine list at this, you know, counter service restaurant, I'm going to start thinking to myself, well, why would I do that? I'm, you know, I'm able to buy, I'm finding bottles I like for 50 or 60 bucks. Do you know what I mean? I think that's, I think that's where it's going to be really interesting to see how people play with this and sort of figure it out. Because the thing that I think, you know, we keep talking about, that we're forgetting when it comes to wine and like that everyone running was running back to restaurants is that's the, not the only thing that people have missed in the pandemic. The other thing they've missed in a large part is entertaining at home. And that yeah. was huge prior to the pandemic. And that's going to come back in full force too. And so again, and probably first, cause you can gather people who you trust in your home. Exactly. And so you're already, so you're already, so you're going to start bringing in the wines that you've discovered throughout the pandemic to home too, right? So you're going to even become more aware of the pricing because now you're buying for a larger group of the wines you like and all that stuff. So I think, yeah, when you go out, it's going to be, what can you deliver for me that I've not had before, especially if you're going to try to upsell, right? What yeah. can you deliver me that I never had before that I don't, I'm not already aware of where where the, the price should sit for this, right? Like maybe you didn't drink a lot of Burgundy at home during the pandemic. I mean, I certainly didn't. Uh, so maybe you still will be willing to pay Burgundy pricing out. Yeah. But, you know, but maybe you won't be willing to pay Willamette Valley Pinot Noir pricing out if you drank a lot of Willamette Valley Pinot Noir at home. That's yeah. sort of the 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 question that I think everyone's grappling with is like, where is this going to land? Because we've never seen this many people at one time be interested in this area and be interested in this area at such a deep level because they were home and this became hobbies for a lot of people. So it's going to be, it's just going to be crazy to see how it sort of impacts the entire dining world. And I think the other piece of this too, is like, you know, you talked about price sensitivity and I, and I definitely think that's a a piece of it, but I also think this is where two kind of related pieces are going to come into play. One is scarcity, right? Because I think that one area where um, pre pandemic, restaurants often uh, sort of trafficked in wines that 
were either actually scarce or were sort of made scarce because they were only made available to restaurants. And there wasn't competition for that exact wine because it was often just allocated to restaurants. So, so the producer, the importer, the distributor, whomever, were all kind of invested in this idea that this is a, essentially a restaurant-only wine, or maybe it goes to right. a few retail accounts who have it already pre-sold. And that's to preserve the 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 you know sort of the, the luster of the price point and all that. And now, because most of those wines, you know, people didn't want to not sell them for a year, and most restaurants are not doing you know over you know kind of on-premise volume that they would support all those wines. Now those wines are out there and it's unclear to me, and we've talked about allocations on the podcast before, whether those wines will go back on allocation to restaurants only or whether they'll stay in retail. That, that I, I don't even want to speculate really. But the point is people have become accustomed to be able to find those wines. So you can't always now rely on scarcity to support pricing, but there are wines that you can and some is just small production wine. Again, coming to your point of maybe this benefiting smaller producers, because again, if there are only 200 cases of a wine made, well then, you know, yeah, I, Someone might be able to do some research, might be a little bit price sensitive, but it's definitely not at their grocery store. So they don't have a ready comparison price wise. The other thing I wanted to bring up is, and it comes back to this kind of interest, this point in some way, is I do think that along with counter service, the other thing you're, we've seen in the pandemic, and I think we'll see going forward, is the the need for virtually every restaurant uh, or wine bar to have both an on and off premise license if they can, yep, if they can swing it. And it's because the thing that you can do as a as a wine bar or restaurant to help subsidize a wine list that maybe doesn't have the same margin is okay someone has a wine they really like well maybe you can send them home with three extra bottles at retail price and they're there they've just enjoyed the wine they know they like it if you've got it on hand and there are parts of the country where that is easier there are parts where it's more difficult i think it's, those rules have been loosened almost everywhere to kind of allow restaurants to continue to actually like sell inventory. I don't, it's unclear what will happen after the pandemic when, if any of those laws will be rescinded or, or, you know, waivers will be rescinded. But if you are able to swing it and you can have an on and off premise license, I think that is about as much of a slam dunk as anything. Do you think though, okay, so just to like, you know, take this conversation to a totally another level. Do you think though that that's going to, do you think that that's going to mean though, that the retailers are going to demand that they're allowed to serve wine inside their, inside their retail shops? Cause I feel like that's a big thing that you see in certain markets, right? Like I think of like Graft in, in South Carolina and Charleston is a perfect example, right? They're a wine shop, but they're allowed to serve glasses and they're allowed to also serve like cheese plates. So mm-hmm. do you think that would, you know, like that to me feels fair, right? Like, cause I think if not, you're going to, he- you're going to hear crazy, crazy, crazy amounts of screaming from sort of, you know, wine retailers saying this isn't fair, right? Like, why do we, why do they get to serve you food and have a dinner capture and then also get a sale? We want that too. Like we want the same opportunity. <laughs> so you're saying like a uh, total wine is going to put some, some uh, tables in their, in their retail spaces. And L- offer look, you, uh... <laughs> I think total wine, I think total wine is just going to try to fight it point blank. Right. Yeah. Like I think, I think the larger retailers are just going to try to fight it point blank. I think, but I think the smaller, like, you know, mom and pop retailers uh, are going to try to fight it now because also a, a lot of wine professionals have moved to retail in the yeah. last year. Right. And so I think a lot of them are also going to say, like, well, I want the opportunity. And that's also why I think what you brought up is really interesting about the allocated bottles, because a lot of the people who are now buying those allocated bottles are former on floor professionals who are now in wine retail who may stay wine in wine retail because they realize they like the hours more. Right. They get to they get to go home at like 930 or 10 every night. Um, some of them. Right. I, I recognize some wine shops stay open later, but, you know, they, they have they have decent hours. They get to come in 
you know, later in the day, sometimes if the wine shop opens around one or two, some open early in the morning, like Astro, but totally depends. And they've gotten to still buy some of the wines they love. So they're going to keep fighting for those wines, right? They're not going to say like, oh yeah, I'm now willing to let all those wines go back to restaurants. Yeah. Well, I think that there's going to be, yeah, it's going to require recalibration on all parts. Totally. Distributors and and importers and and wholesalers broadly and producers are going to have to think about, okay, you know, if I, if I had an on-premise only wine previously, does that still make sense for me? I mean, probably not, especially because they've had to probably abandon that stance in the last year. And I think that whether going back to that makes sense. I mean, I think, look, I think we, we have one thing that it seems true to me and, and likely to remain true is like, we have seen a fundamental shift because of the pandemic in the amount of wine that is sold through on-premise versus off-premise channels. And I don't think even when restaurants are able to open more fully that we are going to go all the way back to the to the ratio we had pre-pandemic because there will be fewer restaurants. Their wine programs will be smaller. People will be maybe still dining home more. They might be, you know, who knows what they're doing, but I think you're going to see on, I'm sorry, off-premise sales be more, continue to be more important than they had been pre-pandemic, even if it does swing back a little bit towards on-premise. But I also think, like I said, we're going to, we're going to enter a world where the, some of the classic dividing lines that we used in restaurants and bars previously and versus retail shops, they were already starting to break down in certain markets. You pointed out Graft. There are lots of great examples in in Seattle and in um, all, all kinds of markets where it's legal to be both an on and off premise retailer. Yep. Um, and people are already seeing that there's real benefit if you're wine focused as a as an enterprise to be able to both capture glass pour sales because those have high margins and also but also to be able to capture volume sales in terms of you know retail bottles because again that's volume that you're just not going to do when someone is sitting at a table they're not going to probably drink four bottles of wine but they might buy four bottles of wine on their way out the door and like look it's so much better for the consumer it's just so mm-hmm. much like you know i get it like i get that there's businesses we want to make money but at the end of the day like shouldn't we all care about the consumer and for the consumer to be able to be at a place, whether it's a wine shop or a restaurant, where they can have a, a delicious wine that they discover either through their server or on their own, and then they get to buy those bottles and take them home, it's just better for everybody. Like, there's probably less annoyance at the wine shop to be like, "Well, this was recommended to me, and then I, you know, I took it home and I hated it. Screw that shop. I'm never going back. I also hated the person. It's bet, you know, like it's just it's good for everyone if we can do this. And I understand it's going to create more competition, and I know it's going to suck for a lot of wine shops who, you know, but. Again, like those wine shops, they'll be fine. fine. They had, or you had an outdated model that, like, your business is not entitled to succeed forever just because you've been doing it. Like we talked about this at the beginning of the pandemic, and and I think you know we got a little bit of flack for being a little bit callous, but like the reality is, your business is not owed an indefinite life just because you like it. And like, if you don't meet consumer needs as a as a staid wine shop tough shit. Like someone's going to do it better than you. And like, they're not cheating. They're just giving people what they want. And if you can't get on their level, then yeah, you're probably going to struggle. I mean, look, you talk about this all the time in biz- in, in traditional business, right? Like, uh, you know, you have these, these businesses that we refer to as cows, right? And you're supposed to slaughter your cows, right? Terrible, terrible analogy. You know, I didn't come up with this. It's business speak. Sorry, people who are vegetarians out there, Naomi would totally kill me right now, but you're supposed to slaughter them, right? Because they get fat and lazy and they're just, they, they graze all day. And it's these businesses that refuse to adapt. And I think what's interesting is that COVID has finally brought disruption to the alcohol business in a very crazy way that it hasn't faced in 
a hundred years, right? Like it's true disruption. And yeah, you're right. The people who figure this out will succeed and they will adapt and they will have strong business models. And the people that don't won't. And we saw this in music. We saw this in literature. We've seen this, you know, we're seeing it in movies right now. I mean, the, the major studios who are so angry that HBO has chosen to release all of their, you know, movies for 30 days first on the platform are furious, but it is what it is. Like, this is where people are moving. They want to watch movies at home and yeah. they're going to be able to see more. You know how many more movies people are going to get to see? And there will be some movies people still go to the theater for. But for the majority, they will watch them at home. And same with alcohol. Like they will go to the places where they have great experiences. And like this is like this is what I have loved forever, forever in New York City about our beer laws, right? Like you can go to a tap room and you can drink a bunch of different beers on draft. And then I can go home with a six pack that I love. And, you know, and it's what I've been so jealous of forever about places like New Orleans and like you're saying now Seattle and Charleston where you can do these things because it's so much more pleasurable as a consumer. And so, yeah, like it's like, let's all just adapt and get better. And then guess what? The businesses that come up with the best concepts will survive as they always have and will thrive. And the businesses that just take advantage of the fact that they're the only, they're the only location in the neighborhood or whatever, they'll, they'll be successful until someone comes and challenges them. And that's the way it's supposed to be for sure. Uh, Zach, awesome conversation as always. I know we 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 took a a little bit of a tangent and talked about business a little bit more than just uh, wine out, but I I thought it I thought it was a good one. So I appreciate it. Lo- would love to hear what you all think too. Uh, shoot us an email at podcast at vinepair dot com. Let's know too if there's another a topic that you're itching to hear us chat about. Uh, we always we always love reader suggestions. Um, and Zach, I uh, hope you enjoy a glass of Will Bourbon tonight, man. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll, I'm not sure what the evening plans are. <laughs> Talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible, and also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.